My name's Andy Day, I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A, and welcome to M&A Q&A. Today we've got Kevin Wassong, who is the CEO of Integ Advisors, and at tons and tons of massive agencies, and worked also in TV and broadcasting. Wonderman Thompson, WPP, WPP.com board member, which is slightly different from WPP. And then is it LIN or Lin Media and Nextstar Broadcasting? And yes. Now the CEO uh, of a, a startup as well, so we're going to go all the way through that. So we're going to kick off with a quick background check, as we always do with our guests every week. Kevin, can you tell us a bit about how you got into the marketing world? Uh, I, I got into the marketing world originally in California. Uh, I worked in the entertainment industry and, and then migrated into marketing before coming back to New York. And I started in the digital space in the mid nineties. So really in, in 1995, I started in the digital space and helped build divisions of agencies, starting with low end partners and incubating their San Francisco office after pitching and winning Sun Microsystems. So I was core to, to that group there and then actually left to build Sotheby's first website and online auction, which was acquired by a group called IXL, which was the first roll-up of digital agencies during the dot-com boom. And when that happened, I left and started J. Walter Thompson's digital arm. This is before Wonderman Thompson existed, so it was called yeah. J. Walter Thompson. Well, uh, I'd for those to, that I'd remember. to find out more about what digital looked like back in 95, up to the, the sort of uh, dot-com bust. What was that? What was a digital agency in it? Uh, looking like in 95 or, or the department for a, an, a digital department in an agency? What did that look like in 95? It's a great question. And I'll be completely honest. It looked very similar to the way it looks today, which is wow. mind boggling, which is mind boggling. That is. You know, obviously the technical advances are are extreme. And I always tell the story how I was at a conference that Esther Dyson put on called the PC Forum in Arizona. And Esther is really a luminary in, in digital. And I was sitting next to a guy. We were talking and I said, oh, what do you do? And he said, oh, I, I just, uh, I'm at Stanford, but I'm doing a startup. And I said, oh, oh great. What, you know, what does it do? And he said, oh, it's, it's searched, you know, it searches. And I said, oh, like ink to me, which at the time was like the leading search technology. And he's like, yeah, it's kind of like ink to me. And I said, oh, my name is Kevin Wasson. And he turned to me and, uh, he said, well, I, I, I'm starting Google. It's called Google. And uh, and I was like, oh, my Lord. If I had looked back at that period of time and, and thought about the, the technical innovations that took place, I mean, just pretty much amazing. So answering your question, it looked very much like it does today. We built websites. We did online marketing. Obviously, search was just growing. There was no social media at the time, just beginning, you know, Facebook's birth was really 1998 and so you know i came up in that in that period of time yeah amazing i was hoping you were you were actually going to say i can't remember any of the 90s i was too busy enjoying enjoying myself <laughs> well i mean that, that's amazing did you tell him that google was a rubbish name and that it, it will never work <laughs> i would never criticize anybody with any name during the dot-com boom because the names were so out there and it was pretty much and, and it, it exists today. It was a URL landmark. It was a URL land grab. That, mm. That's what you were 
looking for. You know, what URL was available? Can I come up with a name that I really like that will stick and I can get the URL for it? Because at the time, I actually had a friend who had written a program to park domain names. Essentially, it was a bot that would go in and buy domain names. And he bought thousands and thousands of domain names. So when you see those domain, this domain is owned. A lot of times it was owned by this guy who would turn around and then sell them. And he made a living off of that for a period of time. But that actually, you know, that's why Integ Advisors is called Integ Advisors, because I actually could get the URL. I wanted something with integration, but after playing around with things, I was able to get Integ Advisors, and and uh, a lot of times when you when you're trying to name organizations, you start with is the URL available? Yeah, I, I've been bu- buying the uh, .co's for everything now instead of the .com. Usually, somebody's yeah. out on the .com and they want silly money for it, so .co is is my go to now. So, how did you end up in digital so early? I mean, you, if you were working in the entertainment industry at the start, and then this, the switch to digital for '95 is still extremely early, isn't it? Before most people were using the internet at home, or at least without a lot of difficulty and having to be a bit of a techie at that, that point. So I was I was a really early adopter. I actually had the first Apple computer. And, you know, not, not I didn't have a Lisa, but I had an Apple mm-hmm. 2E, which was had a Velcro top to it. And you had to buy a different monitor. And you were excited when you could make a, something that looked like a radar screen from a programming perspective. But I, I realized at that time I, I was not a, a, a programmer. I couldn't, I, I wasn't a developer. I couldn't write code. My brain didn't work that way, but I could understand that. And I mean, we're talking, this is the eighties. And when I lived in California, my roommate, I give him a lot of credit, was a um, Apple Macintosh consultant. Wow. So what he did is he went around to advertising agencies and he set up their Apple infrastructure He'd you know spec the computers for all the different uh, people, and then he'd connect the network. And you know this is this is early '90s. He was like, "Hey, there's this thing called the internet," and and that was that. But when I came back to New York and worked for Cliff Freeman, one of my favorite stories was I was working at Little Caesars, and the CEO of Little Caesars shot me a note and said, "Hey, this franchisee built something called a website. I don't know what this is, but I need you to take a look at it." And we had one computer with dial-up in the back room that that was the only computer that was really connected to the internet. And this franchisee had built a website that had Little Caesar stomping the spear and the pizzas flipped. He had a little, you know, GIF animation. And then he had his menu and his address. And the CEO of Little Caesar said, we're sending him a cease and desist. He has to take this down. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is like, this is it. This is where it's going. You know, and that was, that was, uh, that was really part of it. And then pitched in one prodigy as part of that team there. And then the next step was, was, you know, going to work on, uh, on Sun Microsystems, which was jumping into the fire. And, and then uh, it just snowballed from there. And then JWT, the, the, the head of new business for Lowen Partners, left to become the president of J. Walter Thompson. And he called me and asked me to, to be part of the Merrill Lynch global pitch team as a consultant. And I did. And we pitched and won the global business for Merrill Lynch. And uh, that was the genesis of digital at JWT in 1998. Wow. Wow. So if anybody's qualified to talk about digital marketing, it's got to be you. So quite an illustrious career then. Let's get into some of the other stuff that you've done. But just before that, can you tell me about your sort of introduction to M&A and how you developed 
that experience? I mean, what, what was your first introduction to sort of agency M&A? How did that happen? So Low and Partners really was the, the, the first where we were looking at, you know, at the time, especially with the dot-com boom, the agency holding companies obviously were pretty acquisitive and, and really looking to, to build out what they thought their digital offering would be. It started there, but then going to Radical Media, my real jumping into it was um, the CEO and founder of Radical Media came to me when I when I joined, and I joined to run the interactive division. And we had pitched in once uh, building Sotheby's first website and online auction. And he said to me in my first week, "Listen, you got six months to make this thing profitable, or I'm shutting it down." And I, I wish I had known that beforehand. And what he explained was amazing. He's like, look, I, I do production work. We work on a fixed bid basis. I go in, I bid on a piece of business. If I manage it well, I make money. If I don't manage it well, I lose money. It's like any business. Mm. Um, he said, but this interactive thing, I, I can't get my head around. I can't figure it out. I can't make it work. And you know, we're building websites and we're losing money. And so... I did a deep dive into it and I came back to him and I said, listen, unless you renegotiate your contracts with the clients, you're going to be out of business and it's going to suck so much money out of this company. Um, it's not going to work. But I figured out how to make it profitable. And he said, he was so excited. How? I said, sell it. <laughs> and he looked and he, and he looked at me and he was like, you're kidding. And I said, no, sell it. He's like, okay, figure out how to sell it. So I reached out to a guy named Bert Ellis, who is kind of legendary. And Bert Ellis had created the first roll-up of all the radio stations in the United States and sold it to CBS for a billion four. Now, you got to think about the time of this. I mean, this is mid-90s. He sold uh, a radio station roll-up for a billion four to CBS, and he created what was called IXL, which was the first roll-up of digital agencies. And so we sold it to Bert Ellis. I went and met with Bert. Uh, I had actually uh, reached out to a few others, and including some of the agency holding companies, with no luck. But that was the, really the the intro into it. Um, but then going to the agency side, we were very acquisitive and looking at things, especially at JWT, where there were a number of different acquisitions to expand to the West Coast, uh, to expand to the Midwest, um, and I was responsible for building out the strategy of what digital JWT could, should be and creating what was the hub and spoke model for digital in that organization. Uh, so we uh, acquired some, uh, a great development shop in Minneapolis. This was really before anyone was really comfortable with offshoring and, you know, going overseas deep to, to do development. And so, um, we brought Merrill Lynch online. We brought, uh, you know, eight did HSBC. We did a diamond is forever.com. We did brought Unilever online. So really, really some great, great work. So lots of digital transformation during that period. And then those, those acquisitions that you did make, I mean, they're, they're probably quite far back in the future now. So I'm sure we can talk about them in a little bit of detail. What did those deals look like? So, so Martin Sorrell at WPP, he's obviously... <laughs> Kind of perfected the the multiple and the, the sort of uh, acquisition three year earnout type of deal, and that's been prevalent in the industry for a long time. Were you doing those types of deals then with <laughs> agencies, or what? What was I don't even need to answer the question. You just huh. laid it out. That's exactly what it is. It was a template, and and the three year earnout was just standard operating procedure. So you know, we did the three year earnouts with these folks, and um, 
but that create, you know, the interesting thing about the earnout is to me is obviously for the acquirer, you know, in their minds, it really incentivizes the owners to to stick it out and to to make sure that the that the acquisition is a success. And you know, that's that became the standard model for the marketing services industry, but it created a whole host of other problems. Which were not necessarily resolvable, depending on the leadership of the organization that you acquired. Which to me was the most important factor. Like when you acquired one of these organizations, if you weren't acquiring a team player, someone who was interested in the notion of all boats rise with the tide, then you were in you were in trouble. Mm. It wasn't going to live. Well, that model is still prevalent today and probably is at least the starting point for for most deals still although interestingly martin solar has moved away from that type of deal now but what would you suggest would have been an improvement had you been able to go back and advise yourself now don't do these types of deals because they're going to cause you problems i i i honestly don't have the a, a totally clear answer to that other than to say get rid of the earnout. Uh, figure out another way to incentivize founders longer term to believe in the organization and what's being built. I think a lot of times founders, you know, are at the kind of pinnacle of building their business and get to this kind of burnout phase. And, uh, you know, if it's either the burnout phase or the earnout phase, it's a tough phase to work at with the acquirer because. The earnout phase, you're fighting for every dollar. Why should every dollar go to me versus you know the rest of the group? And those discussions are just a monstrous waste of time, and they don't move business forward. And uh, I'd say probably out of eight, I think we made eight acquisitions when building digital at JWT. I'm going to say maybe two of them worked out well, which is probably a good hit record in the scheme of things, but. You know, the other side of it was that, and especially for the agency holding companies, is most of the time they're buying revenue. So, you know, they they want companies that are that are, have a good cash flow, and especially during that that stage of the game. You know, I lived through the stage where, when I started Digital GWT, media was in WPP, was in the agencies in WPP. We were integrated. I was the final holdout on the media side when he created Mindshare. And one morning walked in and had a phone call from Martin who said, Kevin, you're you're meeting with Erwin Gottlieb today and you're transitioning your media to to Mindshare. And I was like, it, it won't work. It, it won't work. And it didn't work. It wasn't the right model for the agency holding company. I don't, I don't, I I mean, let, let me take that back. For a digital services group to survive in that ecosystem, mm. it wasn't the right model. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that, that, that earnout, the burnout earnout stage of a lot of these companies being acquired made it a, a really kind of interesting dynamic. Yeah. So the, I think the way it's being developed, that model now is to have like a single P&L, uh, 100% acquisition of companies that come in, a single P&L, cash, most of the cash up front, but not all of it, but it's not a contingent to anything it's just i guess to space the payments out to make it more affordable and then skin in the game to have a percentage you know a bit of equity in the, the holding company yourself so if that 
develops you know if that everybody does does well together basically and then if they sell it as well there's 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 something for you further down well based on what you're telling me it, it, the good news is it only took 27 years for that model to really uh root itself yeah well 20, 25 <laughs> years because because he's been working on it for a couple of years now i think he's got some mine's got some regrets maybe over sort of setting the world in that direction but it's uh, still a pretty tried and tested way to go just out of interest can you remember what those multiples would have been for a digital agency in those days you know a, a, still we get this today if, if uh, an agency works in a really cutting edge space often they'll get one or two multiples added added on do you think that was the, the case then uh, the, the 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 what i remember was everyone going for about 3x wow and that 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 was about that was about it at the time, and um, you know we got to remember these are service organizations. I mean that's a challenge. You know they they were at the time that I was there, we weren't buying technology. You know when I started digital at JWT, the Detroit office of JWT had built uh, the first ad server for the the digital industry. Uh, they on something called Net Gravity, uh, mm. which was acquired by DoubleClick. And, you know, three years into building digital GWT, we had our own ad server. It was acquired by DoubleClick and, and then it shut it down after I had kind of made a strong push to say, hey, we should acquire NetGravity to have our own ad serving system, which, by the way, I think the agency ecosystem should have had that technology. One of the agency holding companies should have had an ad, ser- an ad serving solution as part of their infrastructure. But it, it it just you could the multiples on the technology were so far beyond what the holding company's appetite for acquisitions could would be at the time. Mm. You know they were buying companies like Left Field out of San Francisco, which was a integrated digital marketing services shop. A company called Imaginet, the one out of Minneapolis, which was a dev shop and and services shop. So mostly marketing services. There was no, you know, there really wasn't an IP that they were buying. They were buying people. Exactly. Well, it's still the same, but I would say that that multiple has probably moved up, at least for the sort of lower middle market. It's usually around five, five and a half. Um, so th- those agencies of that time really missed out when Google bought DoubleClick. They kind of moved into the sort of ownership of that space, didn't they? And uh, they, like you say, those holding companies really should have owned that early on and had to give yeah, up. Do- yeah. yeah. Yeah, DoubleClick, listen, DoubleClick bought the brain that runs advertising. So, you know, you can have the rest of the body, but the rest of the body doesn't work without the brain. And, you know, the reality is it is it is somewhat, not somewhat, it is a monopoly when it comes to that area of the business. There isn't, you know, there isn't a company out there that doesn't work with Google from a, from a marketing perspective. And so, you know, that that's... It is what it is, and and their pockets are a lot deeper than the holding companies. So, how long were you, were you at JWT then? You were there for quite a eight a years. Time. Eight years. Okay. I was there for eight years. Yeah, right. And you were the the CEO of the the digital part of that business. So I I created what was called Digital at JWT, and then uh, we uh, ended up merging that with a company called RMG out of the UK. I actually took the Digital at JWT process brand and and came over to London and worked with the team in London to roll it out there and then with the team in Asia to roll out the digital at JWT brand there. 
but one day, and, and, and part of what I built was completely integrated within the JWT North American ecosystem, both in, in US and Canada. And the CFO, COO of JWT came to me one day and said, I want you to pull all of those business units out, create a single P&L of digital groups, and we're going to roll it up with this company called RMG that we had acquired out of the UK and create an independent digital agency. I like to say I, I think they had delusions of grandeur. You know, it was we're gonna we're gonna create this RMG or digital slash RMG connect and we're gonna take it public as a separate entity and everyone's gonna make lots of money. And I was like, it will never work right. because it's all about integration for marketing and, and it would and it didn't work. I mean it it's it I, I often would say I spent five and a half years building something I loved and two and a half years destroying it. And, uh, and people look at me and say, explain. And that's the explanation. So, yeah, I was, I was going to ask my next question was going to be, um, so what happened there then? And how come you left? Cause it sounds like you were building something amazing, but that, but that was it. So I guess once you felt you've kind of destroyed your, you know, your baby, that was that the reason what? why you then left and moved on to, is it mini? Anvil? Minionville. It's called Minionville, which is a financial first consumer fintech brand. So it was started by a guy named Todd Harrison, who was the president of Jim Cramer's hedge fund and started writing for the street.com on a lark and became ludicrously popular in you know 2005, six, seven in that range. And we wound up raising capital for it independently. We ended up building technology that we integrated in Bloomberg, Thompson Reuters, all of the online trading platforms, um, at, which was a content company. We were really the first. I, I'd like to say the technology we built was kind of Twitter before Twitter. And if we had had the foresight to say, hey, let's just take the technology and run with it and not create the content, we'd be having a much different discussion right now. Right. Um, but we we built that. We were uh, We had an offer to be acquired. And then the bubble hit, or the the 08, 09 financial crisis hit, and changed the whole trajectory of a financial media company. But okay. uh, so you yeah, that, you weren't doing much in the in the way of acquisitions there. But but your next sort of foray into M and A was really the broadcasting uh, roll up. Yes. Well, I you know, like I said, I was I've been on the acquirer side and I've been on the acquiree side. And the Minionville side was really looking for the acquiree and going through the process of of being an entrepreneur and building a company, raising capital, trying to sell the company um, during a very tumultuous period. And that's a that's a tough, a tough road. Um, I left to start the first mobile advertising private marketplace essentially for the broadcast industry the 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 business model essentially or the the, the business plan that was given to me is hey we're going to give you a few million dollars to build a mobile advertising company for the broadcast industry from Lynn from Lynn Media and I built something called One Mobile and we were the first private marketplace technology for uh the broadcast industry we were then acquired by Media General uh, after about a year and a half, and then we were acquired again by Nextstar Broadcasting uh, in what was essentially a hostile takeover of of uh, Media General. So I was an own division, but Media General and Lynn were incredibly acquisitive. Uh, they acquired; they probably did seven acquisitions during the time that we were there. 
And part of that was kind of defining, it, it ranged from, let's say, DSPs uh, to marketing services companies to companies like Federated Media, um, you know, John Battelle's company, which was, uh, which, you know, at, at, at during the dot-com boom was, was really one of the leading content creators out there. Uh, to a company called Hyphen, which was one of the first, um, I guess the best place to, to, the best way to describe it is one of the social tool platforms. So all of these were were acquired um, by Lynn and Media General and and became Nextstar Digital, rolled up into Nextstar Digital. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was part of that process during the time and. Uh, as a matter of fact, during the acquisition or takeover of Nextstar of Media General, I was asked to try and sell one mobile. So I uh, wound up working with a number of different bankers and having discussions about selling that division and uh, trying to make that work. Uh, but ultimately, it, it wound up being part of the, the larger acquisition. Right. So these types of acquisitions at Nextstar, they're, they're a bit more corporate. But can you remember any of those deals in particular, good or bad, as examples of of M&A? Um, <laughs> so it's an interesting question. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to preface it as saying, strategically, I did not lead any of those acquisitions. <laughs> I would say some of those acquisitions were right for what they were trying to do. Mm. Um, I also think that part of their M&A strategy was about momentum and in a lot of ways, you know, perceived momentum in the marketplace, making sure that, okay, this is a, a transformative time in the broadcast industry. We are going to acquire uh, bolt-ons that, that, you know, work within our ecosystem and what we're trying to do and our strategy as a media company, but also make us collectively much more interesting as either an acquirer or an acquiree. And, and that was, that to me was a, was a great strategy and it worked, it worked really well. And I, my disclaimer is I don't have a financial background. I am a business builder, marketer. That's what I do. And so I look at what's needed from a marketing perspective, what types of assets should be acquired based on strategically where the company's going, and then you know who should we be going after to add to it. To be frank, there are multiples in some of these things that I could never figure out how anyone got to, which leads me back to the, I'm not a banker, I'm not a finance guy. So I think that that's that's something key. And I, and I, I think some of that was, you know, today, and it was interesting, I had a conversation recently that, that somebody was telling me last year for marketing, for some marketing technology companies that they were seeing eight to 10X revenue, uh, an eight to 10X revenue multiple, which I was kind of blown away by having been out of it for a period of time. I mean, I would have expected maybe three to five but you know, eight to ten to me, great to hear for founders. But uh, I think you know a lot. Again, I go back to a lot of these companies are a service companies. B, they don't have anything really proprietary. You know, it's 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 part of a trend line. 
Yeah. And uh, I, so. I think it's got a little, I think the prices have been pushed up, particularly because private equity is coming to the space. So they push the prices up from that three x. You know, like you say, most sort of the boring businesses in the world that are service businesses, they would get bought for three x. That's that's sensible pricing. But because advertising is quite a sexy space and private equity is in it now, they're pushing those multiples up a little bit more. I think you've mentioned a couple of interesting things there. I just want to touch back on the first one was about having a profile when you're doing a roll-up to have momentum. That's a really important thing, isn't it? Yes. It's incredibly important. You know, look, perception is reality. And, uh, you know, most people don't have a a lens into the inner workings of a lot of these companies. And a lot of these companies really are about building momentum. I would say to me today, when I look at the marketplace, the one that sticks out for me is Mountain. I think Mountain is a prime example of a, of a company that's pretty acquisitive right now and rolling up different assets. They bought Ryan Reynolds' company. Uh, I think they paid close to a billion dollars to Ryan Reynolds' company. I think that was the number, as I recall, which... Again, I can't really wrap my head around that because, you know, you're buying a person, and you know, it, you're 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 you are literally banking on perception of a guy who is doing the most popular show in streaming, you know, is doing ads and buying companies from Mint to uh, whatever the, the the cellular company is that he's involved with and doing advertising left and right. I've heard you he's know, about that. Seven. So he's about to sell those to T-Mobile, the Mint, Mint Mobile thing. So he, 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 what he touches turns to gold at the moment. So that's mm-hmm. momentum. And also, you know, when you talked about you had you were sort of in charge of the strategy of what you should acquire next because of the needs in that business. What is it that makes M and A the best way forward versus just building it yourself? Why is it why is it better to go out and and buy it? That is such a great question. I definitely, and I'm going to say on a personal level, career level, I really struggled with that at WPP because I felt there were a lot of things that we could have built much more, much more effectively. Uh, Because a lot of times also when you're buying some of these assets, you you have to go back in and fix them afterwards because they don't, you know, it's, you're, you're trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole. And so, you know, you do a lot of shaving of the corners, so it ultimately fits. And, and that to me is not the greatest thing to do, but it, you know, during my time at WPP, I also grew to understand, okay, why, why you would do this. And momentum was number one. Number two was, um, the client base that they already had, you know, did they have relationships and longer term contracts in place? And certainly periods of time, certain companies have those. Uh, types of relationships. Today, what I saw, or at least up until now, although I'd be interested to hear your take on it, I think you're you have a lot more visibility into the marketplace than I do. Is you know, you saw ad tech and martech um, over the last decade or so. Just the multiples were were kind of crazy, and people were acquiring them based just on the cash flow. You know, it was dollars flowing through. I do think there was a period of time where people didn't really understand that. Okay. The money flowing through does not equal a profitable company. Yeah, they might be doing. <laughs> yeah, it's not yours. Yeah, 
you may be doing billions of dollars in revenue. And I put up air quotes in revenue. You know, that used to be called billings in the advertising agency parlance. You know, it was like, this is this is somebody else's media dollars that are just flowing through your system and you're taking a fraction of it for what you do. Well, for some businesses, that's phenomenal. You know, Google has made billions of dollars off of pennies from that particular model. There are a number of companies that have done that. But what I've heard today, certainly in the in, in the private equity space or in the in the investment world, is that there's a, definitely a cooling off of of investment in companies that are contingent that are that are uh, reliant on the flow of media dollars through their platform. That's definitely, from what I've heard, cooled off, and I I never could understand that. So at the time, when you talk about these stages, at the time it was buying revenue. Revenue, buying technology, buying people. Today, I think what people are looking for is, you know, what is that technology that has the ability to scale? What is that technology that has the ability to be uh, ultimately be SaaS? What is that technology that's going to help change the dynamic and make an industry more efficient? And that, that to me, is the exciting area to be in. Well, that that's good timing. Kevin, because that's what I want to talk about now. <laughs> so let's bring everything right up to point. And can you tell us what it is that you're working on at the moment? Sure. So, you know, I go back to when I talked about intake advisors, really, we are and have station with the vision of feeding what our technology would ultimately be. Um, the technology that we've built, which is called marketing.ai, mktg.ai, is really focused on uh, what I call creative tech um, and creative as an operating system for marketers. Uh, you know, I like to say the last decade was really about um, ad tech and martech. And ad tech and martech to me has been about creating and filling spaces with very little regard for what actually filled the space itself. That was a real challenge. Whereas the advertising marketing industry as a whole is art and science. When it comes to developing creative, creative still is an art. Even when you think about AI today and what's happening in the explosion of AI technology, Dolly and Midjourney and things like that, but understanding how those pieces come together and how they integrate and being able to have a lens into what that is and how they perform, that's a big missing piece of the equation. Um, it was something I talked about to the board of WPP.com and I had presented it. And Esther Dyson, when I presented to her what, and I will hold off on telling you how long ago I presented the idea of marketing.ai. Um, when I presented, Esther said, this is the holy grail of advertising. Well, I went back and presented to her um, about six months ago. And I said, is this the holy grail of marketing? And she said, yeah, this very well could be. And I've talked to other people in the banking world as well as we roll this out with clients. And they're like, wow, if this if this takes off and it and you crack the creative technology code, well, this is incredibly powerful. And we think we've done that. And so... You know, marketing.ai is the first really creative first platform for marketers to integrate all of their disparate assets and, 
and understand the performance associated with that creative from a creative first lens. I like to call it a Bloomberg terminal for marketers. Mm. So what you're talking about is instead of tracking like pixels and cookies and things like that, a lot of those things we can't even use anymore. You're talking about being able to track the assets that a, a brand uses across pretty much every platform, see how they performed, see who's responsible for creating those assets in the first place and kind of keeping like a database right across the board of everything that a brand is is doing. How does that work? And what's the AI aspect? You, you stuck the landing and I love that you just synthesized. That's exactly, exactly what it is. So, you know, cookies, IDFA, Android ID, all of the things that globally are a bit under the spotlight right now, they all still exist. They're all still there. I like to say, you know, when we talk about attribution models in marketing, that is something that every large agency is trying to solve for. But I, I say it's kind of akin to going to a nutritionist and saying, I'm going to have a diet of bananas, chicken, and almonds for the next month. But do me a favor, tell me how many bananas I need to eat to make it a chicken. And it's not possible. So the metrics of all of these different channels are all different. Some of them are quantitative, some of them are qualitative. The quantitative ones are great because most technology platforms today have a very robust developer kit. Um, and that developer kit is an API into their platform, whether you're talking about DSPs or you're talking about uh, creative portfolios or social search, anything like that. There are APIs that exist to those, but many times it's like a fire hose. You know, when you turn on that API, I can look at a million data points. It's kind of useless. As a matter of fact, I was talking to the head of marketing technology for one of the largest global banks last week. And she said, we're drowning in analytics. And, and I was like, I, I am thrilled to hear you say that because what we've done is we've created a very simple view. So you, you can connect what you want to look at. Every marketer has KPIs associated with every channel. The problem is they're all vertical. Well, if you can start to get to a visualization of that that semi-normalizes that data, you can start to really understand what's working, what's not working, and you can amplify the things that are working faster, and you can kill the things that aren't working faster. And that's exactly what we're doing. The AI side of it, in terms of what you talked about, is machine learning. And machine learning, you know, is a, a function of input and time. That's essentially the, the calculus of that. So, you know, if you if you have the data, historical data, which by the way, most marketers don't have, they don't have the historical data of all of their advertising to create how each piece of creative performed over history. But if they did, you could do predictive modeling that understood you know, what worked and what didn't work from a creative standpoint, from a targeting standpoint, all those things. They, they do have a lot of it from a media placement standpoint, but they don't have it from a creative standpoint. And so marketing.ai starts to understand, memorize, and build out customer journeys that marketers can go back and use as blueprints for their next iteration of marketing. Wow. So I guess you've got some kind of dashboard and you can actually see which piece of content has done really well and then just do more of that or turn everything else off that you're, you're wasting money on and, and just stick all of the budget behind that. Which you, can, yeah. you can kind of do in an ad service, an ad server environment, 
But I think you're talking about something that's even further up the chain where it's not, you're not even looking at it from an ad point of like a specific ad performing on a campaign digitally, but actually a piece of content that could be anywhere. So this is what you just talked about is one of the fundamental flaws of, of where we've evolved to as an industry, a marketing industry, is we're so verticalized that if you were to take most marketers advertising and you were to set everybody up in a different room and then take their brand name off of whatever it is, you know, television, print, longer tail digital, social content, whatever it is, and you take their name out of it and then you said, okay, show me what or tell me what brand this is from. I'm going to say for 95% of marketers today, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was from the same marketer. No chance. It's designed for the channel. And I would have this debate with people all the time. You need to design for the specific channel. And my answer would be like, no, you need to develop an idea that works across all channels because it, it the, the most effective marketers create content and marketing that you know it's from that company. It's very, it's very distinct and it's, and that's what building a brand is all about. And that's what successful marketing is all about. So you need to be able to let go a little bit on the performance side, uh, to, to build longevity and, and make a brand, uh, really robust and, and successful. Wow. Really, really fascinating, Kevin. And a very exciting space to be in. I, I don't think I've heard anybody else kind of talk about it at all. Okay, so what what's next for you? Are you, are you how is this business at the moment? What stage are you at? Are you a startup or are you, you know, are you out there in production with big clients? So we for for Integ advisors, we still do marketing services. We've worked with a lot of private equity firms. Uh, you know, we've done, for example, clients have ranged from uh, GE Lighting where we did all the uh, C by GE work with John Slattery, seeing his belief thing. Uh, we did all of the integrated marketing for a company called Ideal Image Med Spa, which is a, the country's largest med spa operator owned by El Catterton and TPG. Um, we did a full rebrand of J2 Global, which was a $6.5 billion um, you know, publicly traded company to Ziff Davis, back to Ziff Davis. Uh, so things like that. Um, and, and we work with a host of companies today, uh, like one of the leading corporate communications firms called DeGenero Communications. But marketing.ai is now an MVP. We're rolling it out with clients and we're in discussions with clients. The ideal clients for us have been, you know, groups that range from, uh, you know, from the, the PVHs of the world to the spark groups and authentic brands, really focusing on the, that retail sector to, uh, financial services. And so we are in uh, the MVP stage and rolling it out and we're raising capital for marketing.ai. And that's the stage that we're in. So we are a startup for the marketing.ai piece, but we look to to really migrate away from doing day-to-day marketing services to really doing the technology. Wow. Okay. Exciting stuff. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Just before we open up the floor for, for more questions, if we've got some more from listeners that we have with us here, can you tell us how people can t- stay in touch with uh, Kevin Wasong? So where can we follow you? How can we get hold of you if we're interested in speaking with you? Yeah. So certainly uh, you can reach out to me uh, via my email, which is just kwasong at integadvisors.com. You can also find us online 
intakeadvisors.com and uh, and LinkedIn has always been a great channel to uh, to connect with people in our space and and so we're we're there as well. Okay, brilliant. All right, I'm sure you'll have a load of people get in touch with you. So um, just we have a couple of people here online now. Is there any questions anybody wants to add before we wrap up? Hi, David. Kevin. Hey, hey, David. Hey, Kevin. How are you? How are you? I had a question in regard to um, you. You created this technology, and I, I come across a lot of companies and agencies that develop technology, but they really haven't differentiated. How is uh, your technology really different and going to stand out and make your your company different? I love that you asked that, David. Our, our technology, and, and this is one of the things that I think is really important, having built technology inside the agency world as well, we're not a dashboard. We, we do call it a platform, uh, the same way that a Bloomberg terminal is a platform, number one. Number two is our target is directly with clients, and here's why. Clients, on average, work with six different agency partners. That ranges from you know their creative agency, their digital agency, their media agency, others. And then with the pandemic, that's just really accelerated their use of whether it's in-housing or independent contractors. So that's exploded in terms of how and who they work with. The main differentiator of marketing.ai is it's able to pull all of those people together into a single view of all of the content. So it acts as a digital asset management solution along with the analytics component so that everybody is looking at the same material. And one of the main things about marketing today is to be able to see what's working well and amplify it fast. That is a super inefficient area of the marketplace. So that's what we've created to allow all of the marketing partners, all of the agency partners to view the same information, to see what's working and what's not working, and then to be able to grab those assets to amplify them faster and increase the velocity and the ability of them to go to market and and yield results. Also, you made a comment in regard to um, that you feel that Brands need to pull back in regard to their uh, looking at performance. But it sounds more like you're saying that, no, you're not really looking at different performance. You need need to look at performance a different way. And your platform kind of gives them the tools to really look at their digital assets, their branding, and their communication with uh, their stakeholders and uh, clients differently. I, th- I think that's a great point. It's not about pulling back on performance marketing. It's about, from a creative standpoint in performance, understanding and connecting what's done in performance to what's being done in all other marketing channels as well. Because performance marketing became very, I, I would say, trick-oriented in a lot of ways. Um, how do we make people click on this? How do we make people pay attention to it? And what digital marketing has done is it's created so much white noise that people just don't pay attention. You know, we used to call it banner blindness during the, the rise of, of just longer tail banner advertising. But you have ad blindness because people are, you know, it's like the classic uh, direct marketing television spots act now or free or, you know, being able to how, how big can we make the starburst? You know, those are the things that were all tricks of the trade, and and that's what needs to change. So 
brands and when you see it and by the way he, there are great examples of it uh david sable who ran you know wonderman thompson ceo he's talked about it, what's old is new again in a lot of ways but you know you think about warby parker you think about uh all birds you think about uh bombas uh, you know uh untuck it these are all businesses that were direct to consumer very digitally oriented disruptors you know you, you always heard that that quote well the only time that they became really successful was a when they broadened their marketing and b when they opened retail stores crazy i mean you think about it, it it's a bit of a backwards model start as an online e-commerce solution and then grow out so to your point about the marketing side this is about understanding creatively what works what's consistent, what's integrated, and enabling all of the partners in a marketing ecosystem, which are many times hundreds, to be able to understand this is the voice, the vision, um, and how do we really amplify that to the right audiences. Okay, amazing. Thank you. Any more questions from our guests, sir? Brilliant. No, no more. All right. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Kevin. That's been absolutely amazing. Really has been fascinating as well, talking about the business that, that you're in now. And I can't really see anybody that I've met so far who's more qualified than yourself to go into this from your digital background. I mean, from 27 years in digital, that's absolutely awesome. All right. Thank you very much. And um, Wait, Andy, I, I want to say one last thing, <laughs> and I appreciate you saying thank you. Yep. But... Uh, I, this is my one last story. I met with a VC out of Palo Alto and he said, look, uh, you know, VCs in Palo Alto don't want to invest in a 50 something year old guy on the East coast. And, and I think that it's really important to say this because guess what there is. And I, I was with my peer group the other night. These are people who are the chief marketing officers who are running, you know, global companies today who are building the next iteration of technology. and they, like you said, they're more qualified than most startups today to build something that is sustainable, has incredible value, and is going to impact the marketing industry more than anything that we've ever seen. And I think that that lens needs to needs to shift a bit. And I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and and have me on the sh on the show. We're probably a very similar age, so um, I totally agree with that sentiment. That VCs definitely need to start looking at the other end of the age spectrum because. You know, not every single startup founded by a 21-year-old is going to be absolutely massive. In fact, the, the statistics go against them. People that, that found businesses that go on to be very profitable usually are in their 40s or 50s. And the statistics actually show that as well. Great Cross, Alan Patrikoff, has started a new venture firm that is only focused on companies that focus on an audience over 60. Wow. He said, why, why would I focus on the people that don't have money? I'm going to focus <laughs> on the people that do have money. Especially nowadays, these <laughs> coming up, they've got to rent everything. They've got, they've got nothing left, have they, to spend. So, yeah, I'm going to grow out these white hairs on my, on my beard and on the side of my head. So <laughs> get into some of that VC action. Okay, brilliant. Well, Fantastic. It. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. And um, Thank you. This is going live soon, so I'll, I'll keep you posted. Thanks for everybody that's, that's listened today. And we'll be back again next week with another M&A Q&A.